Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Today, we're going to Southwest Nebraska to talk to Logan Primino of the Wine Glass Ranch. Logan and the rest of the Wine Glass Ranch team have been doing some pretty awesome things at their place that are definitely challenging the status quo way of thinking. I'm really looking forward to digging into a few of those things with him today. So Logan, welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Thanks, Jared. Happy to be here. If you wouldn't mind maybe just starting uh, with a little bit of a history of your your family's ranch and, and business and then your history in the business. I know it's maybe a little bit unique route to how you got back to farming and with a few pit stops along the way. Well, uh, Wineglass Ranch, I'm the fifth generation. Uh, first generation was a Civil War vet. Uh, he walked the last uh, 30 miles to where the homestead is now and thrived and survived through some pretty tough times. Uh, we have a history of growing when times are tough and when times are bad. Uh, we've kind of continued that through multiple generations. He, he, The first generation expanded quite a bit when uh, the times were, were tough here. Uh, me personally... Um, I've been back and uh, farming and ranching for 10 years now, so this is my 10th crop season. Uh, prior to that, it was a requirement from my father uh, to come back to the family operation that I work outside of agriculture and outside of Nebraska for 10 years. So I spent uh, 10 years being educated and uh, had a small career in uh, California. Even outside of Nebraska? not even off the farm, but outside of Nebraska was part of that requirement. Any reason in particular why he set that that rule? Probably the, to enhance the gene pool of Southwest Nebraska. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And it was successful, right? You Did you meet and marry your wife out there? I did, yeah. I met my wife uh, in, in college, and she's from Huntington Beach and been here uh, for 10 years now. It's a nice little uh, life we've carved for ourselves here. That's really cool. Um, I'm curious because you, you talked about it. It piqued my interest on, on growth during the tough times. Um, was there any certain management practices or, I guess, mindset, business structure that your family set up to take advantage of those times that put them in a position to take advantage of those times? Good question. Yeah, they they had capital when people did not, primarily through very, very common in the ranching world when you kind of dig into it. But uh, the first generation... Um, on the work side or on, on the, the wife side, they had family money uh, and were able to expand using that capital. Uh, ranches typically don't uh, grow and get big from ranching, yeah, you'll notice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that, that certainly helps, I'm sure. So then what has it, what, 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 did the, what was the progression of the business? Was it cow-calf? Uh, and, and what does it progress to today as far as enterprises? Sure. Well, it was at the very beginning, it was a corn farm and wheat to a minor degree. And the, the ranch was for uh, Chairman McCoy to uh, care for his stock animals. So his uh, neighbors were having to feed quite a bit of hay and, and to keep their, their farm in operation. And my great-great-grandfather 
decided that he was going to uh, run them on grass, and it was a, a nice strategic advantage for him. Uh, that moved pretty quickly to cow-calf when the tractor came on and you know, re- replaced the stock animals with cow-calf. And then wheat, wheat farming, uh, you know, my great-grandfather and my grandfather, they, they acquired wealth and capital through wheat farming at a time when wheat was a scarcity in the 1970s and uh, the 80s to a lesser degree. From that, uh, we, we've been pretty flexible in what we grow and what we do and, and how we do it. This is one of Alan Nation's ideas, but, you know, we've moved out of a, a scarcity economy in farming and ranching. You know, nobody needs corn. You know, nobody needs wheat or beef anymore. We produce enough of it. Uh, so it's harder to make a living today uh, compared to those times of scarcity. That's interesting. And so that is that kind of as that transition away from scarcity, you moved more towards the livestock enterprises at that point? Or? Yeah, uh, we try to uh, we try to get value and we try to buy value. Um, and we specialize in forage harvesting value. Uh, most of our AUMs harvested are off of our operation. Uh, so uh, it's on wheat or rented corn stalks or hail damaged crops, for example. Um, and we take that value to livestock as well. Uh, you know, we're not strictly cow-calf or strictly stalker. We kind of ebb and flow with the market. Right now, we're primarily stalker. We're primarily steers. I don't anticipate that being the case five or six years from now. Uh, so we we specialize in forage harvesting, and we use uh, a value proposition to decide what we should graze it with and, and how we should graze it. So I'm just curious, you use the term forage harvesting in my area in southeast Minnesota. That means you've got a crew of people operating, you know, some big three-wing swathers, a bunch of balers, maybe choppers, and, and a, a bunch of crew. But I have a feeling that's different for you. What do you mean when you're talking about forage harvesting, and how did that uh, shift into that enterprise come along? Sure. It, and, and to clarify, yeah, forage harvesting for us is grazing. You know, we don't own any harvesting equipment other than cattle. Uh, and we own many different types of classes of cattle. Uh, so we're pretty flexible on what we can, what we can harvest, uh, but we do have a crew. We have like a haying crew, but instead of having like a silage chopper and a baler and a swather, we have any number of class of animals, um, a lot of fencing equipment and a good crew that can kind of travel the county and do a good job uh, similar to a, a, you know, a, a traditional forage harvesting operation. That's really, that's really intriguing. And how did you build those relationships and build that business model out and digging into that enterprise? How does it operate when you you find somebody who's maybe interested in it? How are you, and share as much as you're comfortable, but like, how are you building a contract on what payment or on how are they getting paid? It's not by the ton as it might be typically. And and how are you then actually operating that out? Good question. And it's unique to our area. If you were to look at Wineglass Ranch on a map, uh, it's a ranch in the middle of irrigated farm country and dryland farm country. So what that means is there are a couple um, large professionally run ranching outfits and a lot of small, a lot of farms, both big and small. These farms have survived the 1980s and in the, in the 70s there was a liquidation phase as well, but they they got rid of their cattle. Uh, so I'm surrounded by a lot of farmers that don't own cattle and haven't for. Uh, you know, at least 20 years. So there's a niche here to fill where, um, you know, if you don't want it bailed uh, for many reasons, and we're in a we're in a semi-arid environment here, so there's a lot of reasons to not have it bailed. And the good farmers know that it you can bail, and it's not 
detrimental, but you can't do it every year, kind of year in, year out. So uh, we do have good success with uh, working with these farmers and, and running from them. And I, I think it's primarily more a result of where we are that, that provided that opportunity. And is the forage you're harvesting typically like a residue or a byproduct of another crop? Or is it actually grassland set aside that you're just coming in with livestock to harvest? Typically, uh, a lot of residue, a lot of corn stalk residue, a lot of milo residue. Um, we'll graze uh, a lot of wheat too. Wheat is a cover crop, or rye is a cover crop, or a cool season mix that's following maybe soybeans or, or like a dry edible bean. And that's typically what we'll, what we'll go out and, and harvest. Those are our two main ones, corn stalks and then rye and wheat or a cool season cover crop. So I suppose for those farmers then that you're doing that for, they're essentially getting an additional revenue source off their land that otherwise wouldn't have been able, available to them unless they decided they want to go out and buy the cows for themselves. Yeah, that's, and that's, that, that's exactly it. We, we monetize it for them and, mm-hmm. you know, it's our job to write checks and, and do a good job and we take it pretty seriously. So I don't know how, what that area typically is like, but how important you have all sorts of different genetics, but when you're seeking out certain types of stalkers to buy or certain types of cows to bring in, or, or if you have like your herd of your own, how important is the selection of genetics to fit on that sort of a landscape and in that sort of an environment on crop residue as opposed to high quality forages and high gains? Um, or maybe you are able to achieve high gains. Yeah, good question. Uh, it is a different sort of cow, in particular cows, and we do run uh, you know, sizable cow herd as well, even though we're primarily stalkers today. You know, corn stalks is a strategic or it's an unfair advantage here. Had Burke Tigert out to do some consulting and he kind of identified corn stalks as our unfair advantage. We can win our cow very cheap, uh, unsupplemented, uh, if it's the right cow. And we've run other people's cows too and currently are running other people's cows. And if you do have a nice forage adapted cow, um, she's going to, she's going to thrive through the winter without supplement. Whereas, um, you know, a non-forage developed cow is going to need quite a bit of help to get through a winter just out on corn stalks. And what does that good forage adapted cow look like for you and how have you adapted a cow or built a cow to, to fit that environment? Sure. My, my dad, uh, is, uh, he was always interested. He went to rotational grazing in the 19, uh, late 1980s. So he's always been trying to steer the cow horde more towards a functionally efficient, um, easy fleshing, uh, zero hay consumption animal. Uh, and what that looks like is it's, it's a smaller animal. Our cow herd is about 1,100 pounds, uh, mature weight, 1,150, kind of depending on their body score. Uh, low milk, really low milk. We don't have uh, rich feeds here, so milk can get, get, get us into trouble. And in particular, calving in May, um, you know, udders, we have some Hereford influence and, and bad udders. And high milk just don't work at all in the, the May cabin system. So low milk, uh, low frame score, low weight, functionally efficient cow. Nothing too fancy. Okay. I think I mentioned to you before the podcast how I initially kind of found you or followed you on Twitter. And on the, kind of the main page of your Twitter, it says, if grazing isn't the answer, you're asking the wrong question. Um, I love that. I, th- I think that's <laughs> awesome. But where does that come from? And where does that mindset come from about grazing? It sounds based on your operation that clearly grazing is the way you're doing it, but wh- where did that come from and why? I was talking to a friend, Robert Brocious is a friend of mine. He's currently managing the Maddox Ranch, a neighboring ranch. We had 
a couple beers last night. He made a comment. This is this was several years ago. We were involved in the Executive Link program with the, with Ranching for Profits, where I met Robert, and uh, we were talking about someone, and they were uh, they're very pro bison, and so like every every like bison just kept coming into the conversation, and, and Robert said said to me, he said, you know, Mark's the type of guy that you know if if bison isn't the answer, then by gosh, you're asking you know, the wrong <laughs> questions. And I, I kind of worked it into my own as, you know, my own paradigm is if, you know, grazing isn't the answer, you're asking the wrong questions. So credit to Robert Brooks on that. <laughs> sure. Well, since you've built your operation then around grazing with all the different enterprises, and you already mentioned about how the different, it, it's, it's a shift, it's a varying, you know, like you may be more cow-calf at one point or more stockers at another point. How are you deciding what point that shift between different enterprises are you, or how are you um, making those decisions? Uh, big picture, we we follow the the 10-year cattle cycle. Uh, so we buy a lot of steers and heifers when they're cheap, and we produce more steers and heifers when they're uh, really expensive. So uh, right now we're exposing a lot of heifers. So we've been buying heifer calves this last year, and um, with the idea that in five years we're going to have a fairly large cow herd, and then we'll sell um, dispersion classes of, of cows uh, in 2026 or so. And we've done that for 30, 30 years now. I guess if, if there is a way for those of us maybe not so good at following the market or, or anything, do you have any tips for the average guy trying to figure out what the best way to do it is who's not able to know what the right when the right time is to buy a certain thing, how to assess value of different livestock classes at any given point in time? Uh, the simple answer is start buying animals and messing <laughs> it up and you'll start learning very quickly what value is in yeah. the industry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a better answer would be uh, to read Knowledge Rich Ranching by Alan Nation. Or, you know, that's that one in particular has a lot of uh, information on value in ranching Another option would be to like a Bud Williams marketing class, or, or I just went to the Wally Olson uh, marketing class this fall. It was another good one. But the only way to learn in this world is to do it. Uh, you, you can't read books on swimming and, you know, go jump off a boat in the ocean. Uh, so there is really something to be said for just start buying and selling and, and you'll start to understand value. Um, so going back kind of to where we started when you talked about coming back from or going outside of Nebraska for a while and, and then coming back and, and I'm sure there was some advantage to expanding the gene pool in Southwest Nebraska, but I'm sure you gained some other stuff in that trip too, or in that experience. And your father wasn't just, or, and he had some intentionality behind that. What, what, if anything, would you say you brought or, or maybe start with, what did you do in California? Sure. Well, I went to university of Santa Barbara, California, um, a very nice party school. Uh, had a great four yeah. years. Studied economics. Uh, they did have a good economics course uh, there. Uh, from that, I went into consulting and then um, and then like public accounting for small startups. So we we did. Uh, um, it was more like we go to a startup that had an accounting department of like one half full time employee, and we we would uh, clean up their books and present board packets to present at their their board meetings. So. For 10 years, I really was numbers focused and um, worked heavily in Excel, uh, relationships focused as well. Uh, it was like a consulting for these people. So it wasn't, um, I was on site and interacting with the people with regards to numbers. Um, and so as I came back, 
I have been good with numbers and you know, very good with Excel. And I, I can I can close out cattle and, and, and I always tell my crew here, you know, if you have a question with regards to numbers and it relates to the cattle industry, you know, ask me. If I don't know it, I should know it. Uh, so uh, I'm very fluent in in uh, economics, finance, and, and understanding. That's what I took took home. Yeah, so sort of that idea of rather than working in the business, spending all your time out building fence and checking cattle and, and knowing your every last EP. I'm amazed by some people I talk to. They could look at a cow and tell you everything about that cow, every calf they've ever had. And that's probably to some people, you know, important to a certain extent, but more so that focus on working on the business and knowing your numbers and knowing markets uh, that set you apart. Yeah. It, if you achieve some level of scale and it's pretty quick, uh, you can make a lot more money uh, sitting in your office and you can wandering around outside. So for somebody who's going to shift their focus then towards, you know, how do I improve my business? Where would you start? Where would you direct them to starting? What things should they be looking at if they're going to say, you know, they've been, they've spent their whole life outside working 14 hours a day. And they said, that makes sense. I'm going to spend every morning from nine to 11 looking at the books and trying to improve my business. Where would you recommend they start or where do you, you focus your time? Oh, man, start closing out enterprises or, or groups of cattle. If you have kind of a love for it, even like the cattle, I think it, it will come it will come to you. Uh, it and it doesn't have to be expansive. You can pretty much do it on the back of an envelope. Uh, you'll need some training. Uh, so uh, go to Ranch for Profit, read Allen Nation, and you know, as I said, just start just jump in, start doing it yourself. And I guess I never asked what your role in the ranch is today. Are you the general manager? Or? Yeah, I'd be the general manager. My my dad is 66. He's transitioning out of like the CEO okay. role. So I'm the general manager uh, transitioning into that CEO okay. role uh, currently. And I manage a team of assistant managers that are like the herdsmen. So I have a I have a cow boss and I have two good stalker managers and then we have hourly employees as well so I've, i'm able to spend uh, approximately in the winter probably 60 to maybe 70 not quite 70 percent of my time in the office or working on the business and in the summer that kind of flip-flops i'm probably 30 percent in the office and 70 percent you know on site with the, the cattle and the fields and farm. sure talk about your management of the people side of your business and how you do that with all those different levels of employees? That's uh, a good question, and and it, you'll you'll notice that in agriculture right now, it's very common to complain about the workforce. Um, it's really hard to find good help, right? Um, you know, and, and people are rightly starting to say, well, maybe you know, maybe it's not the workforce, maybe it's you. You know, if, you, if you've gone ten years and you're still echoing that, you know, like the world doesn't have a problem, yeah. <laughs> you probably yeah. do. Uh, the best thing for that, you know, I worked on the West Coast for 10 years um, as an employee. Uh, so I fully understand what uh, what it is like to be an employee. Uh, and I can I can enter that mindset. West Coast management style, too, is just very different, very similar to the Midwest, very laid back, um, slow to criticize, quick to um, quick to praise, uh, very different from an East Coast management style. Um, and I think it, it bolts on very well in the Midwest, and I found it to be a good, good strategy. You know, get the right people on the bus is your number one job if you're like the operations manager. And we're very, very fortunate right now. We've made some 
key hires in the last couple of years and I've got the best team I, in my 10 years. I think I've got the, the best team today that I've had. Yeah. And so what do those good people look like getting the right person on the bus right from the start? What are you looking for when you're interviewing or seeking out potential employees? I'm looking for buy-in to what we're doing. Uh, if the guy has, you know, 12 dogs and 18 horses and doesn't own a pair of fencing pliers, it's probably not going to be, you know, we're not the range riding sure. outfit. Sure. Uh, you know, we're, our, our tagline is productive and progressive. Uh, and we demand of our, our employees to be productive and progressive. Uh, and that's a certain type of person. That person's probably a little interested in regenerative agriculture, uh, maybe keen on economics as well. And isn't afraid to uh, deal with fence. Isn't afraid to man. We deal with problems a lot, uh, and you know you got to keep your cool. And and you know problem shouldn't be a problem. A problem should be an opportunity. Uh, and so those sort of three things are what I would look for when when hiring. And how do you create that buy-in from them as well? Do you do you guys have any programs in place that or anything I guess that incentivizes people to actually feel part of the operation as opposed to just I don't know, cheap labor, labor, you know, hired hand or, or just the help. Yeah, we don't, uh, we don't use the term hired hands. I don't hire people for their hands. Uh, that's one of the things, um, we are very pro continuing education. So, um, after uh, a herdsman has been with us, we'll send them the ranch for profit at approximately year three, depending on their, you know, the progression. Um, I'm a human and I fail and I try to be humble and, and have humility. I've learned that the hard way. Uh, I don't think I started that way 10 years ago. Um, but it, you, we allow people to fail here. Uh, and, you know, we, we have a saying here that you can make any mistake one time. I mean, you can drive a tractor off a cliff and um, blow the thing up. And if it's your first time, you're okay. <laughs> uh, the second time, I've tried to have some very, uh, very unpleasant conversations. Sure. But, uh, you know, people are people can fail at wine glass, and it's not going to be the end of their career, and and that that's that's important to them. Yeah, and when you bring on those new folks, is there a certain training? How do you? I'm just curious because I think, and you brought up ranching for profit. I know they talk about how the people issue is such an important part of these businesses that oftentimes gets overlooked, and maybe there's a lot of folks who will bring in a new employee and expect more from them than maybe should be expected from them as a first, you know, a beginning, how do you train and, you know, sending people onto ranching for profit? That's clearly, that shows your your investment, your willingness to invest in these people. But from day one, how do you bring them up and train them to operate in your business? You know, the best training is failing. Uh, and so like our first year, uh, we put you in a lot of positions where you're going to fail. And I can tell you that this needs to be done a thousand times and until you understand like the, the reward and the consequences, you're really probably not going to understand it. So we tend to uh, give people responsibilities quickly. We're not the type of place where it's like, well, you've been here 10 years and you've been around our cows for 10 years. So you're finally the, you know, the cow boss. It's more, more in line of like a current cow boss. He worked here for about a year and we're like, all right, these are your cows and these are some of the numbers we'd like to hit. Best of luck. Give us a call if you need anything. <laughs> okay, so a lot of faith in it and just letting, I don't know, a lot of faith in these people and letting letting them figure it out. It's not entirely walking alongside of them, but letting experience be a good teacher. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, experience is the it may be the only te- it's the best teacher certainly, and I think it might be the only teacher. So I want to uh, another thing that I saw on Twitter. I think is actually the very first thing that I found you with was a, sh- a post you shared of a quote from a book, and you maybe know which one I'm uh, going to. The Joe and Nancy Paddock uh, uh, quote, where it talks about. Well, I'll just read it to you because I've got it here, and I think it's really insightful. But it says that uh, Joe and Nancy Paddock, writing in Soil and Survival, said that rural communities stifle any signs of initiative in its members through negative reinforcements. These sneers can range from gentle grins to bullying, and most farmers find this lack of peer support impossible to bear. The Paddocks said that this attempt to stifle change is because farmers are not afraid or are afraid not that the innovator might fail but that he might succeed and then they'll be pressured to go through the painful and risky process of learning something new. And I thought that was just like a really neat observation and recognition. And you guys are doing some things. Well, first of all, do you have any thoughts just on that quote that you'd like to share? Um, and then maybe share how, how that's played out in your, your life coming back and, and making changes in your operation. I love that quote. It brings me a lot of conflict. I both agree with it and disagree with it all at the same time. That particular one, it was Alan Nation has, has said that repeatedly in columns and books. I pulled that from Land, Livestock, and Life, uh, which is next to Knowledge Rose Ranching, I think is number two, if anyone is looking for book recommendations. Yeah, well, that's my last question. So we got two. You can think uh, on a third one. Cause <laughs> no. Yeah, don't worry. I've got plenty of them. I'm still learning, too. I, I, anyway, that's their side. Uh, but... I would say that uh, Imperial Nebraska is unique in that we are slightly more progressive than your average farming community. I don't know exactly why that is, but I don't don't necessarily agree with with that I need to be withdrawn from my community. I think I do get support from the community. Uh, irrigation development came in in the uh, 70s and 80s, and it really put pressure on prices and people. Um, I don't see a lot of antiquated uh, farming practices here. There's some, um, you know, to say that we're, you know, regenerative would be not true at all, but uh, we're not uh, a, a community of, of farmers using century-old technology, at least. So um, I'm investing in my community, and I'm a member of my community. My wife and I, we live in town, as, as many farmers and even ranchers do in this part of the world. It, it, what it is true is that um, to be on the cutting edge, I do need to have a network. And my network of people on the cutting edge that are maybe using poly on the range, grazing cover crops, uh, taking management intensive grazing to the next level. You know, it's multiple states. So I, I would agree with the quote in that um, to, to be on, you know, maybe a more cutting edge, you, you do need to network afar. But I I take issue with the withdrawing from the community. I don't think that's the correct approach. Yeah, interesting. And and I should say, I think I ended the, I've got it written here, but I don't think I mentioned the rest of the quote for, for the listeners is that, uh, that they also said that in their opinion, virtually the only way to be an innovator in rural America is to withdraw from your local community and network with other like-minded farmers, wherever they may be until you've mastered the technology. Um, and so that's kind of, interesting that there's some agreement and disagreement and that I guess it's also maybe dependent on the person for the person who can 
withstand certain criticism or I know when I talk to Kit Farrow, he says like he's stubborn and the more people say he can't do something, the more he wants to do something. So recognizing your own personal, your own personal, uh, uh, attitude and mindset is going to be important in realizing how you can, you know, how you fit within that, that experience. Yeah, I would agree. I like Kit's quote of the more people that disagree with him, the, the more he digs the seals in. That's very Kit Farrow. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's for sure. Well, I guess one, one more question for you. As you look forward, it sounds like you're someone who's not afraid to jump in. So maybe all the opportunities you see you're already experimenting with, but what do you see as the future um, for farmers and ranchers? Uh, what, what will give people an advantage and what will set apart the successful from the unsuccessful as we go forward? Uh, collaboration, I think, is going to be ever more important. Had lunch with uh, a good, some friends and farmers here a couple weeks ago, and we were talking farm equipment, and we're dryland farmers as well uh, here. Um, so I am a farmer. Uh, the the irrigated farmers have access to equipment that is just massive, uh, and there was a big shift here a couple of years ago where they got these high speed planters, they got this X9 combine. You know, what a guy could cover maybe 10 years ago, it almost doubled here. Uh, and so there's going to be a lot of machines that are going to be able to cover a lot of acres. And I think we're going to see even further specialization. Um, you know, maybe the guy that grows a little grain, runs a couple cows, feeds a couple fat steers, uh, you know, maybe does it all. I think that they're going to be more and more disadvantaged, which is me. Uh, you know, we, we are similar to that. We are diversified. But I do see the kind of the collaboration coming and just finding an edge, finding your niche. You know, in this community, we've identified uh, grazing. Uh, and, you know, there's there's only a, a, a handful or two or three, there's really about three of us that, that on a large scale can can go out and provide professional grazing services. And um, I think we're going to see further and further specialization in, in agriculture. Interesting. Yeah. Any other final thoughts um, as we kind of point towards wrapping up that you'd like to share? Read Alan Nation. <laughs> he was a gift. Uh, he was absolutely a gift to agriculture, and, and we're blessed that he chose to write in, in our industry. And um, it's been a strategic advantage for our operation. Um, I've read it in my whole life, and so has my dad. And um, Yeah, read Alan Nation. Well, that uh, uh, my last question for most folks is what resources would you recommend? And, and Alan Nation books are, are definitely on top of the list, and I'll put those in the show notes as well. But maybe going beyond even books, what resources as far as you know, podcasts, conferences, um, organizations, whatever, would you recommend that folks get involved with their lookout or, or seek out? I mentioned Ration for Profit, too. That's a critical one. It transformed our business in the in the early 90s when it when our business really needed it uh that's a big one uh I, when we send people there i have i send we send someone every few years um and the, what i hear is that it's better than their four-year degree and quite a bit cheaper too um that's a, a big important resource i kind of alluded to it earlier but uh you know my education in the cattle industry started when i started buying and selling cattle uh, I, I under, I did not understand some things in this cattle industry and, and you cannot understand some of these things, uh, by reading books. You can't learn how to swim. 
uh, by reading books. Uh, so even if you're a cow calf guy, I would maybe maybe just buy a couple trailer loads and start selling a couple trailer loads, and, and you'll understand your own business a lot better. Uh, you know, we, we sort a lot here. We sort weekly. We sort we throw a thousand steers every week, just as a general rule. And man, I remember when you know a cow calf guy that seemed absurd. You know, they take their calf crop to the sale barn and then they split them four ways and then they split the the odd ones off. And you're like, well, what are you doing? You know, you're ruining my my hard work and my calf crop. And man, when you start buying them, you're like, well, you need to sort even more on those. If I'm going to be, you know, if you want me to to buy these for this amount, and um, my education started when I started buying and selling livestock. So. Um, I think jump in and just start doing it. Start making mistakes. It's the only way to learn. And, and on the ranching for profit thing, I do want to ask uh, again, as you send more and more employees there, have you seen them come back with, have, have they contributed to the management? Any Do they see things from a different perspective once they go there and come back and are able to offer more to you as a manager? Yeah, I would say definitely. I do seem to get a different level of buy-in too following that school. Uh, Sometimes they don't quite understand why we do things and the way that we do things. And I've been told that you kind of go there and you spend a week and you're like, oh, this is more clear to me. I, I'm understanding the, the holistic process now and, and, I, and I'm in. Before it was like, well, you know what, you know, why, why are we doing this this way? And I, I kind of get it. I see it. You know, Logan's explained it to me, but I... You know, I maybe don't do as good of a job as Dallas or, or Dave yeah. can do. And I think probably along with that, it's hard to learn from the people you're closest to sometimes. I mean, it, it sometimes it takes getting out and hearing it from someone completely different. And that makes a lot of sense as, as far yeah. as understanding your why. I mean, they always talk about know your why and how important that is to being invested into something. And so if you can get your employees understanding better what you're doing, how much that'll make a difference as far as their buying yeah. and their investment into your business. Well, thank you. That... That's tremendous. If somebody wanted to reach out to you and get more information, talk to you, learn about what you're doing at your your place, the Wine Glass Ranch, how would you or where would you send them to find that? Well, you can uh, follow me at Nebraska Arrow on Twitter. Uh, we also have a website, wineglassranchinc.com, and my email is logan at grazecattle.us. Uh, so feel free to reach out to me. I I love this stuff. I was put on God's green earth to graze it, and I'm happy to share and. Um, and talk about it until you know the cows come home. So feel free to, to reach out. And Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Logan. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks, Jared. Enjoyed it. The Herd Quitter Podcast is brought to you by Farrow Cattle Company, whose mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Farrow Cattle Company at farrowcattle.com. And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com.